It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Unstoppable is how my first guest on the show today is described, and there's no reason to believe anything but that she is. And I might add another word. Be dazzled. <laughs> Tracy Schmidt is on my show today, and it is a great pleasure to have her here. And Tracy, before uh, you've just introduced myself yourself by laughing, but I want to tell people a little bit about you. Uh, she is described as unstoppable, and not just because she was cameoed in the movie of RoboCop alongside Michael Keaton and Gary Oldman. No, no, she's a TV uh, host, and she's shared the stage with Jane Fonda. Dr. Phil, Michael Douglas, John Travolta, Mel Gibson, uh, Mark Wahlberg. It goes on and on. And she has a mind-blowing story, and that's a very good way to describe it. She always gets standing ovations. I'm not surprised (laughs) by pushing audiences out of their limited zones, limitations. And in 2019, she was viewed virtually by over 30 million views. Uh, and is the winner of the 2018 number one female transformational leader by John Maxwell team out of 160 countries. Now, what I haven't told you about Tracy? Well, I'll tell you. Tracy is a quadriplegic, and she is also um, a, uh, a, a an athlete. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has done some amazing things. Climbed the Himalayan mountains, believe it or not. Tracy, welcome to the show today. It's so great to have you here. Oh, David, it's so wonderful to be here at ELMNT. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) This has been us. We've been feeding off each other's incredible energy since the second I walked through the door. It's lovely. Thank you. So listen, um, why don't you tell us? I mean, this is amazing. You've you've done some obviously amazing things, and uh, your smile is is and your your just just the way you carry yourself oh. and come into a room is obviously why I can see so many people are attracted to you, and why I think you've probably been so successful mm. in your life. Thank you. With the things that have also limited you. Yes. Well, and I like to say I'm limitless, mm. but I'm cheeky because I spell limb. With a B. <laughs> so it's not a very good joke, but I got to spell it out. But for our listeners that can't see me, I'm missing my hands and I'm missing my legs above knees. So it's it's the joke is that I'm limb, L-I-M-B, it lists. But the really big secret is you're limitless too. Absolutely. We are all limitless. I just had the bonus of being born this way and to getting to discover that we're all limitless. Yeah. Um, so, listen. Uh, as a Paralympic trialist, uh, you won bronze medal in the downhill ski, right? Paraski. Yes. You've climbed the Himalayan mountains, mm-hmm. and you you captain a one you captained a one hundred and ten foot tall ship in the I, Atlantic. I did. I did. I was. I'm a sailor. Right. I learned how to sail. First, I was falling out of the boat, mm. uh, and I failed. Mm. But you know, you just believe you can do it, and mm. you keep climbing back in. And I eventually grew up to be a World Cup sailor. I sail against able-bodied men <laughs> and, and women. And everybody's got hands and legs. And, and here's me sailing in World Cup regattas in Melbourne, Australia, Miami, Florida, all over the world. So I was on this tall ship. And the captain's wife on shore went in labor. 
Wow. And I was the most experienced sailor on the boat. I was 19. And so he left me in charge. (laughs) (laughs) And I ended up being captain for three months on this, in the Eastern Atlantic, on this incredible tall ship. What a great adventure. Oh, it, and then, yeah. Tall ships are beautiful ships. I mean, they're just absolutely gorgeous. It was fabulous. I was there with two other Canadians that were both from Anuktitut, mm. which was really neat. Uh, you know what I really love about tall ships is they're non-powered. Yes. Just the wind power and that sound of, you know, and just the water and the oh. boat. It's such a wonderful connection. The viewers can't see it, but he's just made the hair on my arm stand up. <laughs> I felt it. I was right there mm. the second you described it. Mm. It's true, right? Um, so listen, you, but you've done some other things. Why don't you tell us about the downhill skiing? Downhill skiing. So, you know, in life, sometimes you don't know how you're going to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And they said, I'm sorry. You know, we would love to help Tracy ski, but she's got no legs at all. And she's completely missing her hands. One arm's no elbow even. I'm sorry. She can't ski. And we had no idea how. And sometimes we all have no idea how. Mm-hmm. We're going to be the super fabulous David Moses of the radio station. <laughs> but we, I just knew I would ski. So we, we kind of, my mom and I, we counteroffered and said, can we just try? And usually people who are paralyzed from the waist down, they use a sit ski mm-hmm. or if you're missing your legs. Mm-hmm. And so it's a chair with skis underneath it. And there's crutches with skis on the end of the crutches called outriggers. Mm. But without my hands... I just kept, you know, we duct taped those outriggers to my hands, but I kept face planning. Mm. But I knew I could do it. So we were sitting on a bench inside, and my ski instructor, volunteer, a, a large, gigantic man, was sitting next to me, and my legs are off. And I'm thinking, my stumps, my thighs could fit in his ski boots. And then I had this light bulb my thighs could fit. In his ski boots. So that's what we did. And we put my thighs in his ski boots. But because ski boots are angled, we turn them around. So I put my thighs in ski boots backwards. And that's how I skied my first couple years. Isn't that incredible? And we had no idea how. But we weren't going to figure it out sitting at home. We weren't going to figure it out Googling online. We had to go for it. And just believe. And so sometimes you need to get all your ducks in a row, who you surround yourself with. I surrounded myself with a great, big, strong individual mm. that was going to be an ally mm. and, and unstoppable with me. And then we figured it out. But the best person to figure it out is, and I'm sure you find this in your community, nothing about us without us. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of folk out there that want to make a big difference. Yep. And they do big-hearted gestures, but they aren't necessarily the gap we need filling. Right. So how? why not involve us in those conversations and in those solution-finding? Yeah. And so we're, you know, we're different. I'm people with disabilities, and this might be a lot of listeners with from Indigenous communities, but the big thing that we have in common is nothing about us without us. Involve us in the solution-finding. Mm-hmm. And then who we surround ourselves with is who we find our solutions with. Right. After all, those solutions will be the ones that you will be dealing with and have to deal with or be living with or will be affected by. Yeah, absolutely. And so, absolutely, yes. Nothing nothing, uh, about us us without us, absolutely, is correct. Um, So, if you don't mind me asking, Tracy... 
you you have this wonderful positive outgoing um, you know appearance and and, and and personality and for those that don't know he's pretty attractive too ah, ha, ha, ha. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> so Tracy um, you know y- you were born like this yes and so when when did it become aware or when did you say or were you always like this about I just got to find the answer you know because I would I would guess if, if it's not too presumptuous to to ask that it could be very easy for you to fall and say oh woe is me kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah, uh, so I, everyone on my street where I grew up were from other countries mm. and we all kind of won this affordable housing lottery you had to have no other family in Canada you had to have two kids under the age of nine and so they felt like family and the first day of kindergarten it felt like I was going to school with my family, with my cousins, because my neighbors were my relatives of sorts, right? We had no other family here. And when we got to the door of the school, the principal just started shaking his head, no. And to feel the silence, my mom says to him, hi, I'm, I'm Tracy's mom, kind of confused. And he replies back, he's sort of like, hello. I'm sorry, Tracy can't go to this school. And we're all faced with no, not just me, Mm. but I'm five years old. Mm. And it never entered my mind before that day that that there was going to be a no, I can't go to school with my family and friends. And my mom, she did not get all mama bear, all angry about it, like I thought she might be. She just replied with a question. She just replied, how come? In the friendliest voice. Friendliest voice. And so I was in school in the 70s. And so children with disabilities were segregated to other schools. And they weren't set up to support. So he said, Tracy's got no hands. There's only one teacher and 30 kids. She's got to be able to tie her own shoelaces. She's got no legs. She's not going to be able to go to the bathroom by herself. That teacher can't leave these other 30 kids because there's no educational assistance. There's no other support. And so my mom replies, totally understand. And she says, since we're here, can we just try for one week? And if it doesn't work out, by Friday, I'll have scoped out the different schools. So I'm there, I'm face-to-face, and he figures, oh, it'll give them a chance to see why this school's not going to work for Tracy. So she says, thank you, and she goes to the door of the school, and she gets on her knees in front of everybody, because I'm five, so she wants to look me eye-to-eye. So she's on her knees, and she's grabbing my arms. You know that five-finger grip where moms hold you tight? Mm. And she's looking me eye-to-eye, and she says, Tracy is really important that you and everybody's included. Nobody left behind, including you. I'm five years old. I have no idea why my mom is so serious. Mm. I just want to go play with the kids in the classroom already. Mm-hmm. So I say, okay, mom. And I don't understand that if I don't get outside at recess independently... I don't get to stay at that school. I look at the principal and his eyes are all welled up. And I have no idea why he's all like emotional. Right? 
And I learned many years later that he races outside, fast forward to Reese's time to find me, right? And he's, because if I'm out there, he doesn't want to tell my mom now that on Friday I've got to go, right? So he's excited. He's like, oh, if she's out here, she could stay. I never made it outside. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, the bell goes off. I never made it outside. So he runs inside to ask my teacher, how come? And he gets inside with the teacher and he's like, couldn't Tracy tie her shoelaces? What happened? And the teacher's all confused. And the teacher says, oh, Tracy was the first one with her shoelaces tied. And he's like, what? Well, then how come she wasn't outside? And she said, oh, her little friend couldn't tie her shoelaces. It turns out none of the 30 kids could tie their shoelaces. So by the time I tied 30 shoelaces, because my mom said everybody included, nobody left behind, right? I missed recess. So how come the only kid with no hands was the only one required to be able to tie her shoelaces? So I learned like super early at five years old that no, N-O, just means people don't (laughs) K-N-O-W. I hear no, I hear K-N-O-W every time. Mm -hmm. And much to my mom's chagrin. No, you can't have these cookies, right? Well, mom just doesn't know (laughs) to everything in life. (laughs) And so I'm always counter-offering no. And like, so how come? And I find out what the problem is. Mom didn't say she can tie her shoelaces. She didn't say I can go to the bathroom by myself. She said, no problem. If it doesn't work out, we'll try another school on Friday. Can we just try? She, she heard he was worried about being stuck with me. So she, she counteroffered not being stuck with me. Mm. She didn't counteroffer, I can tie my shoelaces. Right. So I, I learned a valuable lesson of negotiation, right? And we are all told no in this world. Mm-hmm. For Sometimes it's sponsorship, sometimes it's partnership. Sometimes it's just asking our teenager to not wear the, the belly button revealing t- T-shirt. Mm. Right, so how do we counteroffer those no's and and speak to others listening, and so that's kind of like lifelong. And I think uh, apparently I didn't talk hard to believe until I was two, mm. and then I was I shyer. Uh, but I think I learned because I was a four way amputee to adapt and connect. I need to make other people feel comfortable, right? right? And so I real I learned early. So I'm I'm naturally I've, I, I you, you fill out those personality surveys. I am like. introverted, and I am 99% extroverted, (laughs) but I think I adapted, Mm. and so I think we all need to adapt to connect and speak to others listening, and I was lucky to be born without arms and legs because it forced me at five instead of 55 where you might be laid off for the first time and you've been 30 years in your favorite career, Mm. right? And and then you're adapting and connecting. Mm -hmm. I was lucky to learn at five. 
That's a, a wonderful story, and appreciate you, you sharing that and telling us. And it is true, and I really love what you said about no and no. Yeah. Uh, that's a wonderful, and I, and I completely agree that, that um, you know, this you, gift, you call it, um, gave you the ability to uh, look at things differently. You were forced into it, but yeah. it gave you that wonderful gift to look at things differently that a lot of people do not see. Yeah, they don't have that opportunity because of what you just said. They've yeah. worked in this; they've done the same thing over and over for years. They haven't had those challenges. Yeah, it's just life has been unfolding in a somewhat normal fashion for them. Yeah, and so uh, I hear you when when uh, I've had a few uh, ups and downs in my own life where I always thought I was going to be working, for instance, at one particular firm forever and ever, and then yeah. the company went under. Yeah, and then it happened a second time. Yeah, and I thought, well. So much for thinking about working uh, at one particular place for the rest of your life. You've got to be more resourceful than that. And, and I think that that's what this gift has been given to you, that you are able to see things differently yeah. and be more resourceful. And it has, of course, it's obviously paid off in dividends for you yes. in so many wonderful ways. Yes. I, and I, I worked at Air Canada eight years and loved it. And then there was, you know, pilot strikes and bankruptcies and mergers. And mm. I was the no means K-N-O-W girl. <laughs> right. So I supported them with bankruptcies and, mm. and pilot strikes and mergers. But when they were done with crisis management, I'm laid off and mm. never dreamt of that. And then I went to Shoppers Drug Mart, and there was pharmaceutical reform where the government changed how we fund pharmacies. Well, Shoppers Drug Mart, obviously most of their profits, 55% of their profits, was pharmaceuticals. So when they cut that, it was a big cut to their bottom line. So again, I supported them in crisis management, but then after five years, I lost my job. But it was okay, right? It was okay. And because I lost my job at Shoppers, I found myself in the parking lot very sad. And I knew from Air Canada, another door was going to open. But I'm thinking, okay, I can't drive home feeling this sad because I'm a massive believer in what you focus on grows. Like if I think this isn't going to work, it's not going to work, it doesn't work. And I think if it's going to work no matter what, it works no matter what. And I, it's not just believing it, it's making it happen, right? We got to believe it and then we got to do whatever oh, right. it takes to make it happen. It. Absolutely. And so I didn't want to focus on being sad driving home from being laid off from the second favorite career of my lifetime. So what makes me happy no matter what? And I thought of sailing mm. because of that tall ship life mm. experience as a teenager. So I Google sailing and there was a sailing race. I wasn't a racer, but in San Diego. And so at 1130, I was laid off of my shopper's drug mart job because they were doing fabulously. It was all very good reason. And at 5.30, I was on a plane to San Diego to go sailing. <laughs> and on the water while I was there was a Paralympic coach, a U.S. Paralympic coach. Oh, wow. And I had no idea mm. that sailing was in the Paralympics. I never knew to pursue that dream. And on the flight home was Hurricane Sandy. And it devastated New York, flooded subways. It washed away homes in Rhode Island. And so I thought I was in the air and the turbulence. I thought I was going to die. Mm. And I decided if I lived, then I would pursue my Paralympic dream. And next thing you know, if I wasn't laid off, which was horrific, I wouldn't have discovered my Paralympic dream. And if it wasn't for the storm, I wouldn't have discovered the urgency of living my dream. And so I ended up putting everything I own, my bed, my wall unit, everything on Kijiji. And if it didn't fit in my car and I drove down 
And I lived out of my car for three months until I found a gold Olympian who you surround yourself with is who you become Mm -hmm. to uh, convince him washing his boats and waxing his boats for three months to become my coach. And uh, I ended up not only at Paralympic Trials, London 2012, and for Rio 2016, the trials, I also ended up in World Cup Regatta sailing with able-bodied people. Kicking butt. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thanks for sharing that. You're listening to Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Tracy Schmidt, and she is, among other things, a wonderful individual who just happens to be a quadriplegic but has achieved many great things in her life. And I want to get to some of those other things because if you haven't noticed from how she is speaking, she is uh, a motivational speaker and an inspirational person that, uh, that I think challenges all of us to do better and uh, shows, uh, says to us, we ain't got any excuses. Yeah. And I loved some of the words you chose to use there about, uh, about surrounding yourself with, with the, the right people, about not only having a dream but acting on it and doing the things that have to be done in order to make sure that dream comes to fruition. Because uh, I think that uh, a lot of, of, of people wish and hope but that's not what's going to bring these things to fruition. And it does take effort, and it does take hard work, no matter who you are. No. Washing Magnus's boats for three months, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so why don't you tell us about some of the other things you do, such as motivational speaking. You, 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 are, are, uh, you get up and, and share your story, but you also motivate people because of your... Uh, your gift, this gift that you see things differently, your ability that, that your disability has given you oh. to see things differently and help others. Well, I'm one of the introductions to this fabulous station, ELMNT, <laughs> uh, was because March of Dimes mm. uh, adapted my car that I ended up driving down to Miami, Florida in. And March of Dimes supported adaptions to my home so I can live without arms, without legs, as a, I'm actually a four-way amputee. Someone who is quadriplegic is paralyzed from the neck down. Mm. And they might have some mobility, but their paralegia is that they're paralyzed. So a paraplegia from waist down, quadriplegia from neck down. So I'm a four-way amputee. Even though I'm not amputated, Mm. I'm a congenital, born this way, amputee. Right. And so March of Dimes Canada introduced me to you. And so because they supported my home and my vehicle and in jobs, and they gave me that uh, travel bug that I have in 40 countries around the world, 20 and 2019, they, they launched me in my speaking career in 2017 and in the last two years by taking me and still taking me across Canada opening doors for accessibility mm-hmm. here in Toronto as well as in Ottawa. Uh, we also are supporting Indigenous communities in Manitoba and Alberta. In Alberta, not Alberta. I dial up everything. <laughs> it's so funny. Alberta. Uh, I've got Alabama on the brain. I've got an upcoming speaking gig. Nice. And so I do speaking across Canada for March of Dimes Canada in my accessible car, thanks to them. <laughs> doing opening doors for accessibility. 
when I also do really big stages, as you were talking about, mm-hmm. very excited. There's rumor that uh, Julia Roberts is going to be on a stage at the end of November with me, so I'm very excited. But it's very not, good. I don't count my chickens until they're hatched, sure. but the egg is laid, yep. and there's a possibility. <laughs> and, uh, and I've got a really exciting gig in Niagara Falls. So for all of you that are here in Ontario, I highly recommend doing women in leadership and business. You know, if you're an entrepreneur and or you're working and you want to be more self-directed, I highly recommend you go to the Women in Leadership and Business in Niagara uh, or come and listen to any of these opening doors for accessibility across Canada, marchofdimes.ca for Canada. They have a ODFA, Open Doors for Accessibility. Mm. So you can hear me speak for free in the accessibility conferences, Opening Doors for Accessibility, or you can come fill your souls and your business knowledge with women in leadership and business in Niagara Falls and lots and lots of events. Just check out Unstoppable Tracy on any (laughs) social media and I can direct you to March of Dimes, to Women in Leadership, to ELMNT if you're hoping for an interview. (laughs) Tracy, Unstoppable. Uh, as you're describing yourself, and of course it's in the media, uh, there are things about you as well as unstoppable. How do you, do you like that term? Uh, well, it's found me, mm. right? So in kindergarten, and the principal finds mm. out, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, you know, we sort of talk about, there's all sorts of standard operating procedures. There's reasons why, oh, I haven't got an MBA, so I can't do that. Or mm. I've never been a radio announcer, so maybe I can't do radio. Mm. Uh, but possibly there's been other announcing type transferable skills. Who knows? And so it's funny, you know, I didn't have to tie my shoelaces there's standard operating procedures that make sense. It made sense that I needed to tie my shoelaces mm. to be in that classroom. Mm. So, so don't let making sense be the reason that stops you, right? If you have a dream, you make it happen. And so after that day, the kids and the teacher and the principal called me unstoppable. And then later when I did the skiing and all those face plants before I actually got out of the trees, I ended up on a run before I could ski, by accident, called OMG. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all finding those, oh, my goodness. I was in the trees 12 times. But all you do is ski one more time, mm. right? You try one more time. The only difference between success and failure is one more try, yes. right? Walt Disney failed, not bankrupt, mm. bankrupt nine times. Mm. That probably means he failed 100 times. Yep but bankrupt nine times before he became Walt Disney. Only difference. And so after skiing, they called me Unstoppable Tracy because every time I went in the trees, I'm like, okay, let's try again, right? (laughs) And and with sailing, falling out of the boat, Mm. I ended up Unstoppable Tracy. And when I I washed and waxed boats for Magnus for Mm. three months, and then there was a regatta in Florida, not in Miami where he was, And I said, I don't have a boat, and there's this regatta in St. Petersburg, and I'm trying to charter one, but everybody's afraid to loan me a boat, right? No arms, no legs, and it's an expensive boat. Mm. And uh, he took a Sharpie, and there was this old beat-up boat that there was actually some kind of creature living in the bottom of at the time. I didn't know what it was. (laughs) He said, if you fix up this boat, you can take that boat to St. Petersburg. He says that's not being used anyway. And he took a Sharpie and he wrote Unstoppable Tracy on the side of that boat. And so I've kind of been Unstoppable Tracy and it keeps that word Unstoppable keeps finding me. 
which is kind of interesting. Mm. And and so there you go. When I launched my speaking across Canada with March of Dimes Canada for opening doors for accessibility before mm-hmm. I went around the world mm-hmm. with the Michael Douglases of the world yeah. and the John Travoltas and the Mark Wahlbergs, very tough standing next to Mark Wahlberg. It was just horrible, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but lots of folks, uh, it was unstoppable that stuck. Mm. And so what I did is... I, 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 I got a little disheartened because I don't want to be unstoppable, Tracy. I want to be about unstoppable you. So I wrote a book, and instead of being unstoppable, Tracy, I wrote a book called Unstoppable You. Mm-hmm. And so unstoppable, Tracy, unstoppable you. And I shared my kindergarten story and my skiing story and my Magnus sailing story. But at the end of every chapter, I say, unstoppable you. Right? What's working for you? What's not working for you? What are you going to do going forward to dial it up? Mm-hmm. And that's what this Women in Leadership Conference is. It's you dive in to dial it up. And I'm an advanced level scuba diver, over 100 dives. And so this is you know, another one of my passions. I fly airplanes. I jump out of airplanes. I, I drive. I kayak. Right, I love anything kind of sporty. I, I bobsled. You dive in to dial it up. Right. But I don't just do it once. I like to dial it up to efficient, proficient, right. excellent levels. Right. And I want you to dial it up. We can all do it. If I can do it, you can do it. Mm. And, you know, you talked about, I'm looking at this attractive man in a blue suit. He looks, you know, ready and capable. And I never would have dreamt in a million years that you and I would share this story about the pain of being laid off a couple times. Mm. And then you shared that you did. And and it just, every day I meet somebody and it reminds you that you don't know what's going on behind somebody's eyes. Mm. Ryan's visible. You see my limbs missing. You see my robotic metal posts for legs. And I don't know what's going on behind your eyes. But I know, at you, as you pointed out, I have every excuse to be a different person living a different life. I have every excuse. But I do know that when I live a life of no excuses... I live a life of no limits. So I, I don't know what's going on in your listeners' ears. There are some horrific things going on and with health, with family, with jobs, just heart-wrenching. Things I can't even begin to imagine for folks living way up north with even more excruciating living circumstances. But I know if I live a life personally of no excuses, I have no limits. And if I can do it, no arms, no legs, in affordable housing, you can do it. Very, very nicely said, Tracy. Very, very nicely said. All righty. So, um, uh, Tracy, just before we wrap up, I want to mention one last thing, and that is, of course, your upcoming uh, 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 inductee-ship into the Canadian Disability Hall of Fame on November 6th in Toronto. So congratulations on that. No, thank you, David. I'm so humbled. I'm so honored. Yeah. Well, can you tell us anything more about that? Well, it's uh, it's a, it's the 26th year, and mm-hmm. it's being ha- happening at Royal York, which right. is fabulous. Toronto, and people yeah. like Brian Mulrooney okay. have been yeah. inducted in the past. Mm. So I feel very humbled to be r- alongside these fabulous folk. But what mm. I'm most excited about is that they make a donation on my behalf mm. to a charity of my choice uh, in distinction of it. And then there's a big... Uh, 
photo of me that goes on a wall forevermore alongside all these other fabulous folks. There's an NHL player, uh, James Kite, that's Mm. there and folks like that along the famous walls. Well, congratulations to you, Tracy. And and what a pleasure it's been to have you here on the show today. Oh, David, me too. Me too. I want to thank you for taking the time to do this because obviously... You could be other places, I think. You, <laughs> you have a personality that I think is uh, limitless. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that, uh, that it, it, I, I think we're, we're very honored to have you here uh, and take part and, and share your story, part of your story, and, uh, and what you can bring to others. And I certainly hope that uh, you've been an inspiration to me today. Uh-huh. I hope that you've been the same to our listeners out there. So, Nyawa Miigwechi and Wanishi, and thank you so much for joining us on uh-huh. Element FM. Thank you. Maybe we can do this again sometime. I would love that. Great. Thanks again, Tracy. Thank you, David. And listeners. And don't go away. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and I am your host, David Moses. I would very much like to welcome Sarah Milroy back to the show. Sarah was on the show some time ago. She is the curator of the McMichael Canadian Art Collection, and she's here to talk about a couple of new exhibits. One just opened and the other one that is about to open. Sarah, it's a pleasure to have you back here again. Lovely to be here. And you have some uh, some exciting shows uh, that are... Yeah, we do. Like we have uh, a great fall set up mm. at McMichael, and it's a great time for people to come see us because, mm. of course, the colors start turning, mm-hmm. and we have an unforgettable natural setting for the museum that people really, really enjoy when they come to see us. It's and, kind of uh, art and nature coming together. Yeah, and, and it is such a beautiful place to go and visit at this time, or any mm. time of year, of course, exactly. but the fall... The fall is, of, of course, a particularly lovely time. Bit of a knockout. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess the other thing that, that, that one of the exhibits sort of tie in or both tie, tie yes. in with this time well, of year. Well, landscape right? yeah. as well, you mm-hmm. know, and um, the show that you were, the big show that's opening, large-scale show that's opening on October 10 is the work of Lionel Lemoyne Fitzgerald, who mm-hmm. was a wonderful artist, a contemporary of the Group of Seven and briefly a member of the Group of Seven from Winnipeg, therefore much less well-known than the other members of the Group of Seven, but... And also because he was a Westerner, you know, didn't have the same traction in the East and in the sort of engines of communication in Eastern Canada, Central Canada. But um, Can you it, explain what you mean when you say briefly? What do you mean by briefly? Well, he, he was... joined the Group of Seven just before they disbanded. Okay. So he was actually very good friends with Lauren Harris, mm-hmm. and Harris really admired his work and invited him to join the group. But he joined just as the right. Group of Seven was disbanding. Yeah. So he was kind of of their ilk, mm-hmm. but didn't really have a chance to be a part of the group for a long period of time. But he was not really a joiner in any way. He was a bit of a loner. Can you hang on just a second before Absolutely. you go any further? Yes. I, I, as you were saying that, you know, he was he he was invited to join the group of seven yes. just before they sort of disbanded. Yes. So they were, he was only a member. I wonder what that would have been like. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> to, well, he to, would have definitely been the odd man out because Fitzgerald was not a person who subscribed to these ideas of using art to develop nation building. And mm. He had a whole different vibe than the other group members. He was not, as I said, not a joiner in her, mm. a much more um, kind of interior kind of person. Mm. His work is much more subtle and quiet. Mm. It's not rough and lush and painterly like so many of the group of seven painters are. So he was really a bird of a different feather. But uh, I, but he did have a very you know spiritual connection to the natural world, as did, I think, a number of members of the group, I think particularly of Varley. So, I mean, you know, there's similarities and differences. He's a fascinating figure. I I guess I was was thinking about, um, part of what I was thinking about there was, 
was was there sort of a, an audition, <laughs> you know, yeah, an exactly. audition form? So what would that have been like to have these these oh, other I members, know. these august members? Well, I think he was very honoured to be mm. asked to join. Oh, for sure, you know, for yeah, sure, certainly. Anyway, I didn't yes. mean to interrupt you. No, you no, have, uh, interrupt away. So, so, so we were all excited making this book about Lionel Lemoyne Fitzgerald, who like almost nobody has ever heard of. But boy, are they going to be surprised because it's going to be fabulous. And in the course of thinking about the show, as I said, we wanted to have an Indigenous voice from Manitoba responding to the paintings. Like, how do these pictures feel for people who are, you know, for millennia have been on this land, right? That mm-hmm. Fitzgerald, we feel that he captures that world so beautifully. But, you know, sure. how would an Indigenous artist feel about it? Mm-hmm. So I went to Robert Houle, mm-hmm. who I've known and been friendly with for many years and who I respect deeply, both as an artist and as a human being. If I'm not and, mistaken, Robert was on our program. I'm sure he probably yeah, has sure been. Was. Yeah. And if not, you should phone him right yeah, after right. the session. <laughs> but um, but uh, um, I asked Robert how he felt about contributing an essay to the book on Fitzgerald. And he said, oh, I love Fitzgerald. I've always loved mm. his drawings and his paintings. And he started talking about his relationship that he's had to Fitzgerald's art and to the sky in, in particular. And Fitzgerald makes a point of the sky in a way that is quite unusual in, in mm. any kind of modern landscape right. painting. Some of his drawings of the sky are simply clouds and space and light. You know, they're they're absolutely sublime. So, you know, he happily joined in with that, and we worked on that essay together, and it's in the book. But in the course of having those conversations, I became more and more curious at seeing the opportunity of Robert's sky and horizon paintings. And Robert, as you probably might know, kind of hovers between landscape or representational painting and abstraction, with perhaps more of an emphasis on abstraction. But there's always the feeling of space and, you know, openness in these works that touch upon the idea of horizon and sky. And so the more I thought about them, the more I thought Robert should be here too at McMichael at the same time that we do Fitzgerald. So we sort of scrambled around and figured it out. And what it will be is that you'll walk through the uh, beautiful Fitzgerald show. The last gallery of that is is moving into Fitzgerald's abstracts, which are the end, the, sort of the towards the end of his career. And then you walk through that threshold and you walk into the Robert Houle show, which is Robert's experience of the landscape in Manitoba and of his own relationship both to place and to the natural world there and to the histories mm. that are kind of embedded in in Manitoba. Some of which are, of course, very painful ones. Yes, of course. And, and Robert, of course, uh, Soto uh, from Sandy Bay First Nation. Exactly. Uh, in the shores of Lake Manitoba. So, uh, and, and his experience, of course, uh, he, he was a, a student of the residential school system. He was. He was. He started going to the residential school in Sandy Bay when he was seven years old. So this is the early to mid-50s. Mm. And I think he had seven years at Sandy Bay. Mm. And he was, uh, the only silver lining in this is that he could go home on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So he was not one of the kids that had to live there all the time. Mm -hmm. Those were the kids that were the most afflicted, perhaps. I think he would say that. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to say, too, that Robert has asked me to speak of his experience for him today, Um, just out of respect. I want your listeners to know that, um, because it's obviously not really my story to tell. But... um, um, Robert was sent there as a seven-year-old child. It was, you know, it was um, kind of involuntary that children had to go to the school. He had a very strong family, which is the other thing that I think really helped him through this experience. His an intact uh, marriage with his parents, a lot of s- siblings, a lot of love in the family, and so you know he was able to come through what befell him there, which was physical abuse, sexual abuse, psychological abuse. 
you know, t- terrible experiences with uh, the settler priest there, but also with uh, the other boys that were there. Some of the older indigenous boys became very predatory of the younger boys. They, of course, in turn had been abused. And there was an indigenous leader in that community in Sandy Bay who was also very exploitative of a number of young people in that community. That story all came out in a fabulous book by Ruth Teichrobe called Flowers on My Grave. And Ruth is actually going to be coming from Seattle to uh, the closing weekend of our of our exhibition. Um, she's, uh, she's going to be coming from Seattle to meet with Robert and talk about, because Robert started to remember right. a lot about the granular detail of this experience. It became sort of real for him reading Ruth's book. So right. I think it's really important that they meet each other and explore the impact on each other's lives. So, so but, you, okay, so you mentioned the closing weekend. When will that take place in case people want to jot that down? Oh, God, now I'm going to oh, be sorry. hung <laughs> by my heels by my marketing <laughs> department. But it will be on our website. I okay. think it's... I think it's Saturday or Sunday around February 23rd or 4, somewhere in there. It's towards okay. the end of the run of the show. It's okay. the last weekend of the show. Okay. And, um, uh, but Robert, you know, went through these experiences. He, he didn't for the longest time, which is very common with trauma, really know what had happened. He sort of knew and didn't know, and he kind of put it away. Mm-hmm. And what really happened for Robert is that he started to remember around the truth and reconciliation mm-hmm. Uh, the parliamentary uh, apology. Mm-hmm. He was present at that. You know, after that, he knew something was sort of moving and shifting inside him. He didn't, he felt really a lot of shame and distress. He couldn't really put his finger on it. Mm-hmm. And then he went, traveled back to his community, as I understand it, and for a funeral. And at the funeral, the wife of the woman who had been his principal abuser was at the funeral and he shook her hand. And it was in that that contact in that handshake and being with her that suddenly something shifted and wow. kind of broke open. And, mm-hmm. you know, he went home. Um, he went home and talked to his partner mm-hmm. about the experience that he'd had. And then very soon afterwards, it may even have been the next day, he went to the art supply store, got these big sheets of paper that he would work on and the pa- and the pastel sticks and he, or gouache sticks, I think they are. And he started drawing the memories so the 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 intensity of these 24 drawings is really impossible to describe uh on the radio um what you feel when you walk in the room is that these drawings are themselves sites of remembering he was remembering while he was drawing so they feel sometimes they're partly sketchy and and rough sometimes they're quite highly finished but they're incredibly emotionally charged and like. they belong to the University of Manitoba Art Gallery, and they are—they have been shown in Ottawa before. They've been shown in Winnipeg, but they've never been shown anywhere close to Toronto. And um, as soon as I became aware of these drawings, I was like, wait a minute. This mm-hmm. is so, so important for us to have these at McMichael. And what we're showing them with is um, a suite of works from the National Gallery of Canada, which is called the place where the gods are present, which is in in, uh, Ojibwe, the word Manitoba comes from the Ojibwe phrase, which I would never dare to try to pronounce myself. But the translation in English is the place where the gods are present. And uh, it's four huge panels of abstractions that sort of relate to landscape. And also we're showing Robert's exquisite self-portrait called Blue Thunder, which is his traditional name. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's this gorgeous abstraction of a kind of unfurling sort of angelic-looking form that is not quite human and it's not quite abstract. It kind of hovers in between the two. It's a beautiful kind of yellows and blues and violets kind of unfolding in, in, in blue space. And it's, I think what's so powerful about the show is that you can see 
you can feel to a degree that is actually very, very intense. Like I think a lot of people that are not from the Indigenous community that has been abused in residential schools, I think all people that have gone through trauma of this sort will come into this exhibition and feel something very deeply, mm. you know, here in our space. So you go from that experience to these incredibly triumphant, you know, assertive and um, full and confident, you know, assertions of his creativity mm. in the same room. So it's it's really about, you know, survivance and... There's a there's a wonderful vitrine, a case in the middle of the gallery that has an early landscape painting that Robert made early in his career of his grandfather's farm. A beautiful little painting that looks very kindred, in fact, to Fitzgerald's landscape paintings of the prairies. And a photograph of Robert as a child on his grandfather's farm. Mm. And then we also have in the case um, the document that the government sent him mm. to um, sort of apprise him of his rights for remuneration for the abuse that he had suffered, but it's incredibly clinical and cold and just tells you everything you need to know about the way that the European mindset, you know, quantifies, measures. Right. It's just, it's the the, the poverty of yeah. the culture that is mm-hmm. generating this document. Mm-hmm. It's just like very shaming to look at as mm-hmm. a settler person. I know I certainly feel that way. And then the other object in the case is a coffee cup that Robert's sister gave him and she's, she's now passed on, but... Uh, he gave, you know, she gave him this coffee cup. She too had been a student at Sandy Bay. She too mm-hmm. had gone through, you know, hell and high water there. And uh, this coffee cup, you know, comes from the school. So she gave it to Robert and Robert has his coffee, not right now because it's with us, but out of this residential school coffee cup every morning, which oh. I think is just, you know, the label in the case tells you that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the most wonderful way for him to express his kind of I'm still here-ness, mm, right, you know, right. and the fact that he can put this in perspective and still sure. have this great big life that he has yes. and this this great big talent and, and so much to say mm. to all Canadians. So we're just thrilled to have this show. Um, it was it had to be sort of put together very spontaneously and very quickly, but Robert was so open with us about mm. trying to, you know, get get these stories, um, get these stories out there. Right. And, give people the chance to see them. And he, he came, I feel like I'm just running on here, but he came <laughs> a couple of weekends ago to the McMichael and we had about 200 people in the room mm. and he just sat and he spoke to us about what had happened to him. And, mm. you know, for those 200 people that were in that room, mm. they will never be the same. Right. I mean, I can remember the first time I heard survivors speaking in person mm. about what they'd gone through. It was at the um, residential school at Alert Bay in British Columbia. I was up there doing research on Emily Carr. And I just happened to be there when a film crew mm. was there doing, taking a videotape of survivors walking into the rooms where things had happened to them and talking about wow. their experiences in those rooms. Right. And, I mean, I remember going back to my motel and you know, phoning my husband. I just, I literally thought I was going to throw up yeah. from, from listening yeah. to what these people had been through. Right. And, you know, I think for people at McMichael with us for that event with Robert probably mm. had the same experience, which makes me feel really good about what we're doing. So the voice you just heard is Sarah Milroy. She's the curator of the McMichael Canadian Art Collection. She's here uh, on Moment of Truth on Element FM to talk about uh, uh, two exhibits, but one pre- predominantly about Robert Houle. And uh, that's going to be there for a little while, so people have a mm-hmm. chance to see it. But from your description, uh, Sarah, and what you're describing, uh, it, it does sound like it is something that people should be prepared for. Yeah. Um, that it is going to be uh, something that may... Now, I, nothing I have, is explicit. I mean, nothing is explicit. No, there's just There's just this sense of, 
of deep tremor, yes. you know, underneath yes. these drawings. Yes. And, uh, you know, like some the subject matter is ostensibly quite innocent looking, like the candy shop yeah. in the right. basement where the theater was, sure. right? But what but what you feel is what happened in that candy shop. You know, it, it, somehow the drawings carry that or the drive-in theater or the outhouse where mm-hmm. where Robert was was sort of locked in from yes. time to time and, and bullied by the boys right. or, or abused. Yes. So there are, you know, you, it's almost the fact that you're not told yes. what happened in these spaces that makes them even more right. affecting yes. because the suggestion of violence is, mm. is, is very much there in the touch, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, um, it, it's very. Uh, I don't. I don't want to say eerie, but it's kind of yeah. eerie in just the way you described. You said touch. Yeah. When you said that, it reminded me of what you had said about Robert and and him shaking hands. Shaking hands with that woman. Uh, yes, yeah. and, and that yeah. uh, triggered things for him. Exactly. Then, sort of unpacked uh, the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there is also, you know, there is also that r- redemptive presence of nature. Like one of my favorite drawings in the series is. Um, called Newton is my friend. Newton being, uh, if I understand it correctly, an Ojibwe term for wind. Okay. And it's a, it's a bed beside a, a window frame, and there's a kind of a white gauze curtain that appears to be billowing open. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's remembering how even in these dark moments, he, you know, Newton was his friend, like right. the wind, the, the land, you know, was um, kind of solace to him in, in his darkest hours, which I think is very powerful too. And I think that's... Uh would probably be uh, the same for anyone that finds themselves yeah. in a dark situation. I think where they're so. facing uh, perhaps what looks like a hopeless situation. The mind always tries to find right. something to hang on to that they can encourage them to keep them going. There's something else I want to mention you haven't touched on yet, and that is uh, another painting, and that is um, that Robert Houle did this uh, a retake on, on, on Benjamin West's... Uh, yes, Right, the the, yes. the 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 death of General Wolf. Yes, he did, and and it's actually wonderful because we're bringing that work. It's a it's a three part triptych, mm. and it depicts the plains of well, Benjamin West painting is of Wolf dying on the plains of Abraham. So, mm. so that's a foundational right. um, painting about Canadian identity, the conflict between the French and the English, and there is an Iroquois warrior who's kind of crouching in the foreground at, at sort of slightly at stage left in that painting. What Robert did for this commission for Charlottetown, for the Art Center in Charlottetown and PEI, was that he painted out everything except the Iroquois warrior. Mm-hmm. So all you have is this beautiful, verdant, green landscape stretching out, and then there's water to the, to the right-hand side. And this warrior is in the same position. He's looking out to sea, and no one has come yet. Right. And um, it's incredibly, like, it's very unusually highly colorful yeah. for, for Robert's work. Right. And it's it's just incredibly visually pleasing. And the mm. painting, of course, is wonderful, as it always is with him. But it's a kind of reimagining of, of the possibilities. Mm. And we're okay. going to be showing that at the, at the Toronto Art Fair towards the end of October. Great. Which, again, I need my dates <laughs> in front of me. But Toronto International Art Fair is, is a fabulous event. And I think people are interested in Canadian art and mm. Canadian Indigenous mm. art should mm. go to that fair because right. there's always a very strong presence right. in that fair. But the strongest presence of all um, at this Toronto International Art Fair is going to be Robert Houle, who will be speaking right. uh, on the Friday night uh, right. with me at 6 o'clock about this big painting, mm. we are told, uh, which I, you know is just... a a wonderful thing for us to be able to have that at the art fair right. where there's so much foot traffic. And then we're bringing that painting 
up to the McMichael to be with us for the rest of Robert's show. It's great. Yeah. It's going to be great. So yeah. that's oh, wonderful. Oh, it's a fabulous work. It really is. Because it's, it's, you know, it's witty, mm. but very, very impactful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the you know, it's it's a it's a very very subversive and interesting work of art and very beautiful as well. So, Sarah, how how much time do you think people need to go through this? You know, with, with seeing both of these exhibits together. Well, I mean, our feeling at McMichael is that people, you know, it takes forty minutes to drive there, yeah. and a little longer if you're taking public transport. Mm-hmm. Um, but we like to, of course, forty minutes from say Toronto area. Yeah, but from Toronto, but you exactly. know, people might come from Ottawa first. Oh, exactly. But it's um, you know, we like to have people think that they come to spend some mm. time at McMichael. There's great food to eat. Yep. There's a good gift shop. Yep. There's beautiful trails to walk. Mm. We're right on the Carrying Place Trail, which which is a 5,000-year-old, you know, pathway along the Humber River that's been there forever. And we invite people to go and experience that as well. So, you know, you could do both shows in an hour and a half, but mm. but – but why would you? Yeah. You know, you yeah. could like bathe and marinate in it sure. and then have a great meal and maybe go back and look at it again and then find something to read in the bookstore and, yeah. you know, go for a great walk. It's like I, I understand the rivers and the Humber might be one of these, but I understand the rivers are going to be renamed all the rivers. There. Is that right? So I'm wondering if the Humber and maybe the yep. might be involved with that. I, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to get someone on the on the show to talk about those renaming ceremonies. Oh, that's that great. Place, so, yeah, yeah, we had a meeting recently at. Uh, kind of a ceremony at um, uh, the McMichael last year about the saving, the designation of the Humber as a heritage river. Mm. And it's an anniversary. I can't remember if it was the 20th anniversary mm. or the 10th. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of people who had originally done that big fight to protect that river and have it designated in this way. Right. And we had a fantastic Indigenous presence ceremonially right. at that right. at that event. And it was great. But we, we are really excited that we're on mm. the Carrying Place Trail. And in fact, one of the things we're thinking about uh, is uh, we've been speaking with Bonnie Devine, who you, who you might know, a fantastic mm-hmm. uh, Indigenous artist from this part of the world, about doing a um, site-specific installation that starts in our lobby and kind of goes up the ramp into the first mm-hmm. galleries about where we are mm-hmm. on the land there and what right. the history is of right. the Caring Place Trail and that part of Ontario. Right. Because, you know, it's just very important to me that particularly school students, and we have 35,000 of them a year who come mm-hmm. through, that the first thing they see is about mm-hmm. the land they're standing on and what its history is. And, right. you know, yes, they're going to go and look at the Group of Seven, or yes, they're going to go and look at Inuit art, or they're going to do this, or they're going to do that. It's all going to be good. But let's be clear on whose land we're on. And, of course, we always have a big display of Norval Morriso and Woodland School yeah. Yeah. on at the McMichael because right. for the same reason, we want to anchor people's yes. experience in the the indigenous cultures of, yes. of this part of Ontario. Right. So yeah. we're going to have to start wrapping up, and it's unfortunate because it's wonderful talking to you. I know, it's always, always such a, a pleasure good time. to have you here. I know. Uh, but I, I do want to ask, so, uh, um, you know, Robert, um, how is he doing himself? Well, you know, he is he's at peace with all this, he would say. He, you know, I think he felt like it was much more difficult for him in his life before he remembered. Um, he describes himself, I never felt he was this way, but he describes himself as having been a rather you know, sort of inflammatory, like quick to anger mm-hmm. and and maybe difficult and distrustful and, you know, like that he had more struggles as a person interpersonally before he remembered. And I think he feels that there's been a great deal of mm-hmm. of peace that's come with understanding his history and connecting also with other family members of his and mm-hmm. other people that have gone through this mm-hmm. and, you know, been able to to move beyond it. And for him, you know, this has been his kind of reconciliation mm-hmm gesture mm-hmm. to to make these works and then to share them with the public and to educate and inform and 
illuminate people's understanding of uh, the history of this country. Right. So is there anything else we haven't touched on that you think is important to mention, or have we pretty much... Well, I um, just, I guess I'd want to underscore, you know, how important this these issues are to us at McMichael and, and how, you know, one of the things that people don't think of when they think about the McMichael is that almost a fifth of our collection, in fact, it is a fifth of our collection, is Indigenous materials that were collected first by Robert and Signe McMichael and then all the way through to the present. And for various reasons, um, the collecting activities at McMichael have been somewhat dormant for about 25 years. So... We're doing a show um, at the end of next year, which is going to be called Early Days, Collecting Indigenous Art at the McMichael, which will gather together some of the kind of glory days of our collecting from the past, like both those traditional uh, masks from the Northwest Coast, and that sort of material, but also like we were the first museum to collect Carl Bean. We oh, were yeah. the first museum to collect Alex Janvier. Mm. Um, you know, we, we then then there were fights actually between the McMichael staff and the, uh, and the McMichaels themselves over the way in which the collection was evolving to include more politically charged work mm. and uh, like Carl Beam or like early works by Gerald McMaster. And uh, in the end, the province of Ontario backed the staff up and said, no, the McMichael must be able to move forward. And so like the first performance of Kent Monkman as Miss Chief actually took place on horseback at the McMichael. So, you know, we're in this show, we're going to be going mm-hmm. back and revisiting some of these points of contention and these kind of glory days, mm. and then adding to that show a roster of new important works by, you know, leading Indigenous uh, artists from across the country that we're mm-hmm. hoping to bring into our collection over the course of the next year. Yes. And we've already made a wonderful start with a major acquisition of uh, three sculptures by Rebecca Belmore that are going to be unveiled on National Indigenous Day uh, next summer in June. Uh, we have a, made a major acquisition of uh, a Kent Monkman painting mm. um, that's been funded for us by a private donor. So we're we're really ambitiously wanting to, when that show opens, we want people to see, yes, we have these um, earlier historic materials, but we have them in conversation with what is happening right now. And so, the, and we're, of course, bringing in advisors and people to work with us on that show to make sure we get it right. Okay. Sarah, it sounds to me like you just set yourself up for another show later on to come back and talk to us more. Oh, it would be my great pleasure. (laughs) And, you know, something that we didn't get a chance to talk about, and it sounds like it would lead into that as well. And it it ties in with these two, the the one Robert Hool show that we have now. Yes. uh, But it's the process of healing through through creation. Well, and also, you know, I think a lot of, I mean, I'm coming at this from a settler point of view. I think a lot of people, you know, from the culture that I'm a part of, kind of have a hard time absorbing the horror of it. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I, I mean, I think there is. There bloody well should be. But mm-hmm. anyway, I think there is. But people kind of get their circuits jammed, and, mm-hmm. and they have a hard time taking it in, so they want to deflect and escape sure. and dodge and weave. Yep. There's something about art that, as a way of truth-telling, that mm-hmm. just slides under people's skin and gets right at their soft core, okay. you know? and And that's... That's what we need to do in a museum right now, and that's what we're trying to do at McMichael. We're, we're really excited about it because it works. Well, let's talk about that more when you come back next time. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you it's for coming always in and delightful. speaking to Thank us you. about the curator of the McMichael Canadian Art Collection to have you here. Thanks for coming in, and we look forward to you coming back next time uh, on Moment of Truth.